HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host here on Heritage Radio Network, and today's show is being sponsored by Cabot Cheese. For holiday recipes, let the taste of Cabot Cheese make them even more special. Award-winning Cabot Cheese. 100% of the profits go to New England and the New York farm families for your holiday recipes for the holiday cheeses. You can find out more about Cabot Cheese on the web at cabotcheese.com. Well, today on A Taste of the Past, I am very pleased to have with me a friend and a wonderful author with a very rich history. Her name is Roseanne Gold. And Roseanne, if you're not familiar with Roseanne, I mean, how could you not be? Because she's had books around. She's had tw- she has had 11 books out, the very popular 123 series that she founded. And um, she is she has just published a brand new book called Radically Simple, which is radically beautiful. But Roseanne, this is your, her 12th book. She is a four-time winner of the James Beard Foundation Award, a winner of the IACP Julia Child Award. And Roseanne started her career as a chef, and not just a chef, any chef, but she was the private chef to New York Mayor Ed Koch. And then she went on to be a chef at a lot of trend-setting restaurants. She was a chef director for the Joseph Baum and Michael Whiteman Company restaurants, including the Rainbow Room and Windows on the World. She's been a guest on many television shows and radio shows and has written articles for, well, actually, you you were a columnist for a while for, was it Bon Appetit? Yes, for Bon Appetit. I wrote a column called Entertaining Made Easy. And uh, sometimes I think, who's kidding who? (laughs) (laughs) Entertaining is not easy. Even making coffee for 12 people, I think, can be a challenge. Well, in... And this book called Radically Simple, and there's another very special thing that, that Roseanne is involved in. We're going to talk about that later in the show, and it's all about uh, preserving the past through cookbooks. But we'll talk about that in good time. I first want to talk about Radically Simple because, as I said, it's radically beautiful. But this, I mean, you you filled this niche with the whole one, two, three series, the, you know, the three easy steps and simple yes. steps. And now you came out with this how how is this different and what what made you come up with this idea well that's a very important question um because one two three cooking with three ingredients is is radically simple isn't it but this was uh really a different philosophy 
when I started with the one, two, three series, uh, it was just supposed to be one book. One day I woke up and uh, had this idea of recipes with three ingredients, and I used to be a musician. So I really think a lot about my recipes in terms of chords, chords of music. If you hit each one of the notes, you know, in harmony, sometimes you can't even differentiate what the individual notes are. And I use a lot of musical references in my recipes Mm -hmm. and in my cooking. And that was a lot of fun to explore using one ingredient to its max, um, really thinking of interesting, simple flavor combinations. But the idea was so compelling to me at the time that, you know, I continued and I think there were nine books in this series. So many people joke with me, though, uh, what was my next book going to be? (laughs) Four, five, six? (laughs) And uh, that was tempting, but um, I wanted to expand my horizons a little bit and not really be so doctrinaire about how many ingredients were in a recipe, but to really explore the uh, elements of time and ease. So all of the recipes are an interplay or a balance of number of ingredients, time and ease. For example... Well, that, that, is that the three dimensions that you talk yeah, about? I mean, exactly. You say I cooking call it in three dimensions. Exactly. Yeah. Cooking in three dimensions. So for example... Uh, if a recipe had 10 ingredients, there might be two lines of text. Um, you just throw everything in a pot and, and walk away. In fact, one great example of that. I know what you're going to say. Oh, I wonder, do you think it's the buttered onion, whole yes, buttered onion soup? Yes, <laughs> what a fabulous concept. Talk about it. Yes, <laughs> it's a, a whole new way to think about making onion soup. And it's called whole buttered onion soup. And you put three pounds of whole onions. They're peeled, but you put them in a big uh, Le Creuset pot or whatever. Slice a stick of butter on top, salt and pepper. You put it in the oven for four hours. <laughs> I mean, you're not there. Yeah, that's great. You, yeah, you, <laughs> you walk it. away. Right. You, you know, uh, clean the house or go to a movie. And you come home and you puree the entire contents of the pot in the food processor, because at this point, the onions have given up all of their gorgeous juices. Uh, They're kind of mahogany colored. And you puree um, the onions with the juices with a little bit of Madeira and honey. And that's it. And Linda, it is the most just simple, radically delicious. When I read that, I said, oh, this woman is talking to me. (laughs) That's that's perfect. Right. Yeah. So that would be one example. Uh Uh, Another example of kind of this uh, interplay would be my opinionated way to roast a chicken. And that's only one ingredient. And it's just a chicken. You know, I kind of played on this uh, cliche that everything else tastes like chicken, Mm -hmm. but very often chicken does not. And if there's one thing that's probably argued about more between cooks is how to roast a chicken. The perfect way to do it. Well, this was a little bit of daring because I decided, and this was after a lot of experimentation, but I uh, cooked the chicken stark naked. Mm-hmm. Uh, that not me, <laughs> the chicken, <laughs> and I don't even put salt or pepper on it, and I put it. Uh, breast side down in a small pan. The size of the pan is really important, just like a small round flat bottom pan, like a paella pan even. Uh, breast side down, 30 minutes, turn it over. There's some juices in the bottom of the pan at this point. You baste and right side up for 40 minutes. And that's it. And then at the end, you add salt and pepper to the pan juices. You might boil them on the stove for uh, a minute. And it is just the most perfect succulent bird with a crispy skin. But it only works on a four-pound chicken, let's say four to four and a half pounds. I tried it the other night with a seven and a half pound chicken, and that it didn't work at all. So don't 
do your turkey that's kind of the opposite i mean judy rogers uh, from zuni cafe is quite the opposite she's like loading it with salt and almost like salt baking it well i've made it that way too and her recipe is also delicious it's delicious it's amazing how it can it can work out both ways yes but it's not quite as radically simple no uh, absolutely not and then since i'm a chef sometimes i like to add a little chef flourish at the end so i do something called a foaming chive butter sauce and again four tablespoons of uh, butter three tablespoons of water a clove of of smashed garlic and some freshly chopped chives. You boil that, and it really does foam. And you pour that over the chicken. Oh, so you don't have to use an, an emulsifier no, or anything, or one of no. those. those. It does. It's not that creamy, um, although it kind of is. Uh, yes, but it's not an, an emulsified mm-hmm. sauce. But it's a lovely thing to just kind of pour over the chicken nice. if you want to be a little fancy. Yeah. <laughs> well, what I was impressed with um, in this book, I mean, because you do have this this history behind you of. of kind of capturing the attention of cooks, home cooks, in that, yes, you can make a home-cooked meal and it can be easy. But what I'm impressed with so much in this book, and all your books are beautiful, but this one is that um, everything seems light and healthy and and just rich as in color, mm. in presentation. Yes, that's very important I mean, as well as it is... Uh, easy, yes. and, but it's also, I mean, delectable looking. Well, I think there's a lot of grace to the book. And also it was very important for me in styling the photographs um, to make the food really look beautiful. And very often in recipes, people kind of forget the last detail about how to garnish a dish or mm-hmm. what it should look like. They mm-hmm. kind of just throw that out the window. But I think it's important. Oh, we, it can make all the difference. I mean, you can present something very healthy and clean. And let's say when you're trying to, especially trying to cut down. <laughs> yes. But if you make it appealing to the eyes, mm. you know, then you can fool the stomach sometimes. Yes, and you I really do it. Absolutely agree. I think... Um, there's some confusion with the notion of simple or easy cooking. Very often, people who write cookbooks that say simple or easy, um, there's a little bit of a dumbing down or uh, to, uh, of the senses, right. if you will. So my idea was to really bring restaurant food home. So these are dishes that look beautiful and sound and taste as though you might have gotten them in a very contemporary restaurant. Well, in just reading through some of the recipes, too, I mean, mahogany short ribs and, I mean, <laughs> things that you, you know, you look at on a menu in a restaurant, as you say, and your mouth starts to water and you have no idea how it's made or what the ingredients are. But yes, I'm going to order that just because it sounds so wonderful. Exactly. But a picture of one, again, another chicken recipe. You have a lot of wonderful chicken recipes, <laughs> by the way. But the, um, it, it just blew me away. It's the chicken that I mean, they're just skinless, boneless chicken breasts mm. that you can put together in, you know, in two minutes. But with roasted grapes. Oh, yes. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> and it looks so, as you said, so sophisticated. Yes. And, I mean, the, a quality of dish that you wouldn't expect to make at home necessarily. No, and I think the real surprise there, too. I started roasting grapes about six years ago, um, and other people, you know, have done it since. But I think this is really unique. I make a grape demi gloss, And again, this was just experimentation. I took uh, grapes, fresh grapes, and... Um, just juice them. I did put them in the food processor mm-hmm. until they were, you know, really smooth and just uh, push them through a press. And then I cooked them. And I think um, 
maybe it was the pectin in the grapes, but the sauce, the, oh, yeah. the grape juice got up. so thick. Mm-hmm. And then I added a little bit of cold butter, very much in the way that you would make a traditional demi-glace. And it was the most beautiful sauce for this um, uh, very simple chicken dish. And right. it's very, very healthy. Yeah, um, it, looks, it looks wonderful. Yes, yeah. that, was the, that was the real surprise. Yeah, grapes are a great thing. They do, they do firm up very good. Concord grapes, you know, before the mm. bees all get to them and you have them left over and nobody <laughs> eats them. I just throw them in a pan and boil them. You know, it's, Yum. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, and then they, you know, right on jelly. Pancakes. Yeah, yeah. Um, The other thing is that, although it's radically simple, you have some very different ways that you present of doing things. You use a lot of interesting spices and spice mixtures as well. In fact, I kind of got a real uh, Middle Eastern feel Mm. from a lot of what was going on in this book. (laughs) Mm. And. And, but yet different ways of cooking things, too. For instance, the broccoli, the different way of cooking the broccoli. It was a revelation to me. All right, and I cook a lot of broccoli. And I roast it, I fry it, I you know, boil it. But you have a wonderful method that is so simple. It is simple, although someone pointed out the other day that um, – they loved it. They thought it was simple, but it maybe used required one too many pans. <laughs> so oh. I have to maybe re- <laughs> revisit that. Also, Linda, the idea of what simple is really is different for everyone. That's right. It depends on your level of cooking. It depends on if you're the kind of person who opens up a couple of cans of things or throws something in the microwave. This book may not uh, appear then as simple to you. The way the great equalizer, though, for me was that every recipe uses uh, can be expressed the procedures expressed in 140 words or less so it's not quite twitter but close so i think that's simple so that's kind of my definition um but it's uh just interesting about how um Um, the broccoli the the broccoli dish came about because uh, there's a wonderful restaurant in London called Ottolenghi. And very often I am inspired by other chefs and other people's restaurants. And this recipe was really created by them. I have a couple twists in it. But the uh, broccoli is uh, blanched just for a few uh, seconds because we don't all have home grills. Mm-hmm. And, you know, charring vegetables is really delicious. So then it's it's uh, blanched and then just put on a sheet pan with some olive oil and some chilies. And it does get that charred quality, and right. it's really fantastic. And yet it's cooked through because you've blanched it, yes. so it's cooked yes. enough that it's crispy. And fry, you fry, a lot of recipes include the frying the tops of, of vegetables that we wouldn't like, you know, radishes and carrots and yes. fried carrot tops. I think yeah, I was great. the first one to do a, to fry a carrot top, and I actually did that for a children's cookbook that I did. It was a book called Eat Fresh Food for Teen Chefs, which came out That's, last year. You have a website. Uh, Yes, there's a little website that's a lot of the um, entries are done by teenagers. As a matter of fact, there were two girls from a private school in New York. I'm not supposed to mention the name, but they actually cooked their way through that book, Eat Fresh Food, much in the Julia Julia Child Child, uh, (laughs) style. And they used that for their English thesis and they graduated and went to great colleges. So, uh, But But you you fried the carrot tops. carrot tops and they are delicious. You know, if they're not fried, they don't taste good at all. Yeah, well, I, I did a double take. I said, did she really mean frying <laughs> carrot tops? And but, indeed you did. But what a lovely garnish for the top of a carrot soup. And some of that thinking really was born out of the one, two, three idea. Because, uh, again, back to if you only have three ingredients, you have to try to use every bit of the ingredients. So mm-hmm. I made a lot of interesting discoveries that way. Well, now that you, I mean, that you are no longer chefing, of course, you're, but you're constantly re- developing. Just recipes. in my home kitchen. I was going to say, is this pretty much the way you cook now? Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, I mean, I got a feel for that. When I, it just sounded like you were so comfortable 
in this style of, of recipe and, and cooking. Yes. In a funny way, sometimes I even call myself a lazy chef. Hmm. Um, and I, I think when I look at a recipe and it has, you know, three pages of text and many, many ingredients, even though I'll read it and I'll get a sense of what it tastes like. And I'm very impressed by those. Uh, I'll save that for a week night. Right. Not, I mean, I won't do it on a weeknight. That's a Saturday or Sunday cooking. Um, or I'll read it for some kind of historical reason. But it's basically not the way I cook. Yeah, and there's nothing more daunting than, you know, coming home and having these good ingredients saying, okay, I want something really good for dinner, looking at a recipe, and it's three pages long. I mean, it's exactly. like, yeah, that's, that's going to kill even the most accomplished cook. You know? One thing, uh, people have commented that they felt that some of the ingredients were a little esoteric or hard to find. Um, and it's an interesting comment and something that I'm really thinking about. But there are 325 recipes. You got to find something that well, you can make. But if there are 10 ingredients that are new to you, believe it or not, that was very intentional. Uh, because these are our new, this is the new global pantry. Right. All of these ingredients will very soon be in the supermarket. 99% of them already are. I mean, for example, sriracha Thai chili sauce That's, is the darling. everywhere now. Exactly, of yeah. every single chef. It's the new ketchup. Truly it is. Thai fish sauce used everywhere. Um, there, there are other examples. Smoked paprika. I mean, these were things that were very daunting a couple of years ago. But I... So my idea is, if I can introduce you to a simple way of using these, then I embolden you to go and find them. And also, I mean, I, I noticed from your, I said I got a Middle Eastern feel from some, there were, I guess, a group of recipes, and your spice blends. All right, maybe, mm. and maybe you'll introduce, people will learn something. Why get a book if you're not going to learn something? You want to learn something new. And I think the other Interesting thing about that. I think that's a good comment that someone said some of them were, you know, the ingredients were esoteric. Is that you, this is not for, you haven't dumbed it down. It's not just for one particular audience. There's a, that it reaches a large audience. Everyone can find a little something in there that they want to Or a lot of something. And a lot of something. (laughs) And, and um, you did, I mean, you, it's not, you didn't really shortcut too many things in terms of leaving things out. I love the fact that you even have a, a, quick and easy recipe for flatbreads. People wouldn't even think to make a flatbread by themselves. Oh, you know, this was so exciting for me, too. I can't stop making them now. I am a lousy baker, and I very rarely, you know, I think most people kind of do one or the other. It's a right brain, left brain kind of thing. Um, You know, are you a cook or are you a baker? And I'm a much more organic kind of cook because I like to fix things as I go along. And for me, the discouraging thing about baking is that you can't fix it. You know, after it's in the pan and baking, you know, it's either got a hole in the center right. of it or something is not not quite right. Although I do have some lovely simple oh, cakes. You have and your ice little black dress. <laughs> yes. You have a little black dress cake. I love that name. In, <laughs> a in, little black dress. No in, flour. No flour. No flour. But boy, is it rich but, <laughs> and, but, and easy. And very easy. And yeah. I, I can tell you that recipe in, in, in a second. The flatbreads, though, I mean, really, it's flour. It's some creme fraiche, which gives it this very silky texture. Some You can use fennel, uh, fennel seed, or caraway. And you roll it out. And, and they look like professional flatbreads you would get um, you know, in a gourmet yeah. food store. And how easy is that? And you can make them in right. 15 minutes. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk more with Roseanne Gold. And we're going to talk a little bit about history as well when we come back after the break.
New England and New York farm families who own Cabot Cooperative are offering listeners a chance to win some of the world's best cheddar simply by calling into the show at 718-497-2128 or emailing us at info at heritageradionetwork.com. What a great way to start the holidays. I'll be picking a winner for the program two weeks from today. Cabot Creamery is a proud supporter of what Heritage Radio is all about. We're back. I'm talking with Roseanne Gold, um, cookbook author and former chef. Her new book is Radically Simple. And Roseanne, I could talk about this book all all day for the whole show because it is wonderful, but don't let people discover that themselves. Radically Simple, Breathtaking Flavors with Breathtaking Ease by Roseanne Gold. Um, but I want to, first of all, I'm dying to ask you, okay, what was it like cooking for Mayor Ed Koch? <laughs> we were both much younger. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> this was 1978, believe it or not. Wow. I dropped out of graduate school, I think much to my parents' real dismay. Uh, and I told them I wanted to become a cook. And this was so unusual in the Heard late 70s, in the late 70s, uh, especially for women. Um, so I lived at Gracie Mansion, which is where the mayor of New York lives. And it was just me and Ed <laughs> because he wasn't married yeah. and didn't have children. And oh, my goodness, it was daunting. But he's a lovely man, and um, I must have cooked like his mother. Huh. <laughs> Maybe that was a good thing or a bad thing. I yeah. don't know. But and how um, many chefs did he audition? I mean, you know, it, that's what I always wonder about these. Yes. You know, um, uh, how you know, like well, the White House, of course, we know because we hear a lot about that. But right, I think this was uh, right being at the right place at the right time. Mm. Uh, they had hired a, a, a fancy French chef, what they told me, uh, when I went to apply for the job. And uh, I said, well, if anything happens, you know, I'm, I'm around. And a week later, actually, they called me. So that was one of those unusual things. I think the French chef forgot to reduce the wine in his uh, beef bourguignon. Oh. Oh. <laughs> anything unusual about um, his request? I mean, uh, light, heavy? I mean, I know he went through a lot of different diet phases right. over the years, especially them. that was later after you left. But... Um, at that time, were you, you know, was anything well, trendy? Well, liked anything that- with gar- garlic. Um, he loved Chinese food. And this is the really the one cuisine I'm not familiar with mm. at all in terms of cooking. And I don't think you can know everything. So you do pick and choose, I think, your cuisine. So he always went out for Chinese food, but he (laughs) loved Chinese food. But it was a time that uh, northern Italian cooking was becoming very popular. So I actually went to to, uh, Florence, Italy, to study with Giuliano Bujali so I could learn how to make pasta. And when I came home, I would make Ed mostly um, sort of northern Italian food. Oh. He really loved that. Not bad. Not <laughs> bad at all. Well, um, something else that um, I know, cookbooks, of course, being near and dear to your heart, um, you are involved in a very important project, and that is NYU's um, Fails Library collection of of cookbooks and ephemera um, documenting what's happened in the, in the world of food. And you helped Les Dames d'Escoffier, of which you were... Um, president, past president, mm-hmm. you helped Les Dames d'Escoffier uh, establish a 
well, Carol Brock's collection. Carol Brock, who was the founder of Les Dames. Yes. Tell us what you did about that. <clears throat> sure. Well, Carol Brock is um, an extraordinary woman who I always felt was a little bit unsung because in the mid-70s, she identified this need uh, for a women's organization, the first professional women's organization of women in food and wine anywhere in the world. Never happened before. And um, it continues to this day in many chapters over the world, and it's very exciting. So I wanted to establish something for her and uh, got everyone in the organization involved, and we raised $50,000 in her honor to give to New York University Fales Library uh, for new acquisitions. Now, the exciting thing about the library under the curator, Marvin Taylor, Mm -hmm. the library has grown in five years from a very modest size to the largest and maybe most prestigious cookbook collection in the country. And that beats out uh, University of, or Michigan, Michigan, Michigan State and, and uh, Schlesinger Library as well? I think I think so. But That's of course, amazing. in that world, maybe they judge or they have different criteria. I yeah. don't know if it's just sheer volume yeah. of books. No, I know, or... it's, I know that it has been growing and much has been, been written so about it. So it's very exciting. Well, so... you made quite a personal effort <laughs> as well. Well, what happened it was because of that connection and they were so pleased and it's just, they're great people there. Um, I got a phone call one day not long ago from Marvin saying that Gourmet Magazine was going out of business. Which we all know. We all know and miss, right? Okay. Exactly. But oh my goodness, no one made any provisions for the cookbooks. And they had a 3,500 cookbook uh, collection that was carefully culled and then edited by the editors at Gourmet. And it was going to be broken apart. And the real value there is keeping it together as a collection, as most, that's the value of most cookbooks. Um, See, what did they go to? What was their? What were their go-to sources? What did they consider important, important books the, during the time over exactly. the years? Exactly. So he was frantic and wanted to buy this collection, and he just called me and said, "Did I have any ideas?" And uh, really, he had two days, and he called me on Friday, and I think by that next Tuesday, that a collection was going to be gone and sold for four dollars a book. I mean, what a pity! Yeah. So I thought about it, and I've never really made a purchase like this in my life. But I spoke to my husband, and I said. You you know, I just got some money for a cookbook uh, advance. I would like to take some of that money and buy that collection and give it to NYU in my mother's honor. Oh, that's and wonderful. he said, "Go for it," and that's what happened. And that's that was thirty five hundred bucks. That yes. was a, that was a big purchase. <laughs> yes, it was. Yes, uh, well, but four dollars a book, so you can do the math. But what people don't realize when you—that's um, only part of the cost. You see, it costs quite a bit of money to curate a collection yeah interesting tell us about that i was just speaking with someone about that the other night Ah. shockingly they were people people are amazed yes um there is i think it's different depending on the institution but there are a lot of man hours involved just in the physical um collecting of the book and putting it on a shelf and then putting it on the internet and then putting a label on it um cataloging cataloging the um uh, in te- keeping the integrity of the collection, um, how to divide up the collection just in terms of, you know, I'm not quite sure how they do it at NYU, but there are many, many hidden costs. So for any book, um, it may cost maybe even $40 to... Well, didn't Marvin give us a throw out a number like something like for this collection, it'll be like $60 a book? Maybe you're right. Maybe I don't, it, it was closer to 60 uh, it, I was. I, I know that I was shocked. Yes, uh, yes. That and much money. They're about to get another very big collection. I can't, you know, say from whom yet. And and that's beautiful. But, well, since but that, that time, there's no money to, cook, that's, to curate that's it. That's right. So, so that's and 
I think it's that way with art museums um, as well as libraries that they do have all these treasures in the back storerooms. That's right. Just because no, and people don't even know half of the things that they have. Yes. But I know that New York Women's Culinary Alliance has given all their records, and the Culinary Historians of New York has now donated all their records to to Fales Library. So indeed. It's you know just in the world of food and and food studies and NYU now having the largest food studies program yes. in the country. Uh, it's, it stands to reason that they should have, and it's only right that they should have the largest library. Yes, and, it's a really a go-to place for many many reasons. And some of this uh, was because of Dr. Marian Nessel, who I think had the idea originally to really up the importance of the collection and got the collection from Cecily Brownstone, who was a very right. important food writer. So this is all about preserving history. And in a day and age when we don't even know if they're going to be cookbooks anymore, it's very important to have uh, people who are passionate about this. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you're... Thank you personally so much for <laughs> the effort you did. You have a wonderful story that... Um, that has been written about about um, about cookbooks being so dear to you, and you you said you mentioned that you donated this cookbook collection in honor of your mother, and yes. um, story about when you were a little girl. Yes, it's it's really true. I uh, my mother was a wonderful cook. Uh, I say she was more Jaja than Julia in the kitchen <laughs> because she was this gorgeous Hungarian woman, uh, and she was a great cook, and it was wonderful to hang out with her in in the kitchen, and that was great together time. My father came from Boston, so he was a good cook too, and he cooked you know lobsters and very Yankee kind of food. So food was a very important um, part of part of our lives. But my mother told me um, that I actually used to carry a cookbook around with me when I was five years old, and that I took it everywhere. I took it to bed, to the bathroom. I was never without this little cookbook. <laughs> and I was experimenting, you know, from when I was very young. Uh, I guess I saw my parents have a lot of pleasure from from cooking. Mm. And uh, I guess that's how it started. Destiny. Destiny. <laughs> <laughs> and then it turns out that my um, grandfather and his mother... Uh, when they came over from Hungary, actually had a little Hungarian restaurant in Astoria. And I didn't oh, know that until didn't much, know? much later. Wow. Yeah, it's fun yeah. to put the pieces together. Yeah, and then you see how it, you just naturally fell into the right field. Exactly. Well, um, in this, in the Fales Library um, collection, is there anything that um, the public can do in terms of, of um, helping out? Wonderful. Um, the collection isn't completely curated yet, and mm -hmm. I believe early spring it will be uh, all done. And I think there's great excitement about seeing what that list is. I've never seen it either. Mm. I have no idea what that list of 3,500 books is. Right. So um, that may be available uh, to people. I don't know exactly how one gets a library card or gets access to, to the collection, but people can certainly make donations to um, the Fales Library or to the Les Dames de Scoffier, Carol Brock new acquisitions program to help curate some of the uh, books and to help uh, buy new books. All right. So if they go to nyu.edu, they can find out more information. Absolutely. And Marvin Taylor, again, is the uh, the curator of the collection. Um, I wanted to um, also talk about, well, I, we mentioned your website that for the teenage uh, yes, kids and yes. fresh cooking. And what is that again? That is www.eatfreshfood.net. 
and so it's for really, teenagers. It's really teaching teenagers to really contro- take control of their of their eating. And well, their food, you know, right? there's so much discussion. I mean, this is the national dialogue, isn't it, That's about right. childhood obesity and and I mean, school and and food school in our lunch schools programs right. and all of that. But quite honestly, I I can sum it up in three words: the, the solution to this problem, and it is eat fresh food, and that would take care of everything. Uh-huh. Um, easier said than done, though. I really Absolutely. understand the complexities of this issue and and the importance of the issue. Um, but Linda, what's exciting for me now that I'm not working on a book project, you see, I've written 12 books in 14 years, so <laughs> I have a little bit of a break, but I did just start a blog just uh, a month ago and I'm really enjoying it. And um, that, what is that? Where that do we find that? That is rosanegold.wordpress.com. Well, that's easy every, enough to find. Every morning I'm up writing and, um... It's it's kind of fun. I never thought I would get into this. In fact, the electronic I, age. Yes. Thing, right? But it but it's uh, you know it's here with us. The next thing you know, you will be reducing those hundred and forty words to forty. You will be twittering. Right? Oh, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure, and I I look forward to reading your blog because I'm sure you always have wonderful things to say, and I'm sure the blog will be filled with great information and, and recipes. You're gonna have recipes on there every as well. day. There's a special a, recipe. What? Well, it, just to go back to your book, radically simple. In this particular book, or in, in writing the books in general, what was the greatest? What was the greatest challenge in this book? Is there is there any one thing that was that stood out as a challenge to you? Consistency, mm. Linda. It is so hard to, and I work alone. Um, so, well, we were talking during the break. You're telling me that n- not only the food styling, but the the titles of the recipes and the, and the layout, everything. I mean, you really were hands on yes. when you do a book. Yes, and they take a long time, and they're really twenty four seven. And I've been working on this one for years, but to make sure that a recipe works, um, you know, you do it once, you do it twice, you do it three times, and cooking is very uh, frustrating in that way. You know, it everything matters: the size of the pan, the um, you know, what heat you're cooking something over. So I think that's the biggest challenge for me mm-hmm. is to make sure it really works every time. Well, and how many times do you test each recipe? I try to do it three times. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, it is a wonderful book and I congratulate you on it. And oh, and, and you told me at the top of the show that this cookbook is going to be featured in next week in People Magazine. Yeah, hoo-ha. Huh? I was, I was, <laughs> How often does People Magazine feature books? Right? I don't think <laughs> cookbooks. Uh, cookbooks very often. And yeah. this is must be uh, in advance of the holiday season. There are four books mentioned, but I must say mine has the biggest uh, little review. Good for and, you. And a recipe. And yeah. you know what? I think they're making a statement, Linda, because they picked a recipe with broccoli. Hmm. And uh, maybe they're trying to inform and help in their own way. Well, People should eat more vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> well, this one's just fun and it's good and delicious. And I just, I applaud all the work that you've done in preserving the past through cookbooks. And that's very important to me as a culinary historian. I, that is, is super important to me. And it has been a pleasure having you on my show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Again, this has been A Taste of the Past and I'm Linda Palaccio. Thank you. Thanks, Sue. Thanks for listening to A Taste of the Past on the Heritage Radio Network. Coming up later today at 1 p.m., The Farmer Report live with Heather Hyman and Aaron Fairbanks. They'll be joined by Ben Flanner and some others. So tune in to that at 1 p.m. and follow us on Twitter at HRN Updates. <laughs>